Welcome to the Everything 80s Podcast Halloween Special. happening welcome back to the everything 80s podcast and welcome to the halloween special so what we're going to do today is look at three specific things from the 80s the first one is a bunch of beloved breakfast cereals the second is a 1980s classic horror movie comedy and the third thing is the probably most iconic music video ever made and you can probably assume where this is going but before we start if you haven't already make sure you subscribe wherever you find your podcasts i should be there okay here we go so i'm going to start with what are possibly my favorite breakfast cereals ever and those of course are the monster cereals we're talking count chocula frankenberry Blueberry, and kind of an interesting story actually too. Did you know there was a few more cereals that rounded out the collection? There were five in total. The whole Monster Cereals series started in the early 70s actually, went back to 1971 if you thought it was a, only an 80s product, even though we consumed it primarily in the 80s. These were cereals I was dying to have as a kid, but just was never allowed to. They were considered the ultimate in junk food cereal. But I did get to try the odd one here or there, and it was absolutely life-changing. So, like I said, started in 1971. Count Chocula was the very first of the cereals. His actual full name is Count Alfred Chocula. Then there was the strawberry-flavored Frankenberry. So the idea is that they would base these cereals on a cartoon version of a classic movie monster. Frankenberry actually ran into some problems in the early 70s, depending on old, how old you are, you might remember this, where some of the pigment used to turn the cereal pink was causing kids' bowel movements to also be pink. So that was a bit of an issue. Booberry was introduced in 1973 and helped the, swing the whole line into popularity heading into the 1980s. So this is when the lesser-known other monster cereals made their debut, which included Fruit Brute, uh, that was discontinued in 1982, and then it was replaced by Yummy Mummy. Yummy Mummy replaced that in 1987. It lasted all the way till 1992. So I always thought I had a good grasp on cereals. I had never heard of Fruit Root or Yummy Mummy. I think partly because I grew up in Canada, so you know some things weren't always available here or promoted or, or whatever. But it's just one of those things I'd never heard of. These cereals were pretty much discontinued into the 2000s, but in 2010, they started to re-release. And every time, you know, each year around Halloween, they put them out for a couple months. And then they'd sort of stagger them as well. They wouldn't be out every single year. And, you know, I would jump all over them as soon as they would come out. Um, in August 2013, they decided to release all five of the Monster Cereals, which included Yummy Mummy and Fruit Root, which had both not been on shelves for more than 25 years. A few years ago, I think it was three years ago now, they did a retro box release as well. And I wish, wish I had bought those. I remember seeing them thinking like, oh, I'll get them later, I'll get them later. And then they're gone within a few weeks. So that's Monster Cereals, some of the greatest cereals ever made. Okay, now we're looking at a 1980s classic horror comedy that is a Halloween classic from 1988. 
Tim Burton's Beetlejuice, starring Michael Keaton, Alec Baldwin, Gina Davis, a young Winona Ryder. Came out in March 88, go, go on to be not only a critical success, a commercial success, and a Halloween classic. So let's look at the plot and then a few like sort of behind the scenes things. So we start the movie with Barbara and Adam Maitland and they live in this like perfect Connecticut country home called Winter River. Barbara's cousin, Jane, is this pushy real estate agent and she's always hounding them to sell their large home, but they refuse. While driving home one day from a trip to a hardware store, they swerve on this bridge to avoid a dog and their car plunges into the river. When the two return home, they find that they can't remember how they got back, having no recollection of the event. And then when Adam tries to step out of the house, he steps into this sort of alien desert with this monstrous like sandworm something out of like dune they find a book in their house titled handbook for the recently deceased and they realize they drowned in the crash and they're now trapped um, haunting their very own house so since they're dead jane sells their home to the deets family they're from new york city so charles is a former real estate developer he's married to his second wife um, Delia, she's a sculptor, and then their teenage goth daughter, Lydia, from his first marriage, Winona Ryder. Um, so they have their interior designer, Otho, with them, and uh, Delia makes plans to renovate the entire house. The Maitlands attempt to uh, try to frighten away the family to keep their house back, because that's sort of their purgatory where they have to always live but they fail because they cannot be seen so they end up taking refuge in the attic that's where they come across this sort of ogre ghoul called beetlejuice and he sends the two advertisements promoting himself as this like bio exorcist and he's the one who can get the deets family out of there so they consult the handbook and then the maitlands open a door to the netherworld they discover that the afterlife is actually structured like some government weird complex bureaucracy and they have a caseworker named juno she informs them that to get the deets out um, if they want them gone it's going to take a lot of paperwork red tape so they inquire about beetlejuice and juno explains he was her former assistant who then became a freelancer and she suggests that this guy is a troublemaker and they should stay away from him and not seek his help so the maitlands return to their house that's where they meet lydia and she's the one who's able to see them because she's got a strange gothic kid She's also read and understood that handbook. So the three of them become friends, but the Maitlands still want to get the Dietzes out of there. They end up summoning Beetlejuice, but his very over-the-top crude personality convinces them that they made a mistake and they refuse to work with them. The Maitlands attempt to frighten the Dietzes at a dinner party with this famous dance sort of sequence thing. But the actions that they're trying to scare them with only end up amusing the, um, the family and their guests and everything like that. So Otho takes the handbook and then Beetlejuice comes through, sort of manifests as this giant snake and attacks them until the Maitlands order him back. You know, you have to just say Beetlejuice three times to get him to come or disappear. So Juno then summons the Maitlands and reprimands them. Um, first, because they're, the hauntings they do are just totally mediocre, completely subpar, and also that they summon Beetlejuice. They went against what she said, and um, they're also now providing proof of the afterlife to the living. They're supposed to keep this secret under wraps. Um, so now Juno orders them to get rid of the Dietzes. 
the two cannot bring themselves to scare Lydia, and they decide to allow the family to stay. They're just not committed enough to getting them out of there. So then Charles has the idea to turn the town into a tourist trap, like uh, having this sort of supernatural museum in the house, then convinces his former boss, Maxie Dean, played by Robert Goulet, of all people, uh, he convinces him to come visit. And he, uh, Maxie Dean, demands proof of the supernatural. He wants to see the ghost. So using a handbook, Otho summons Adam and Barbara, but they begin to decay. And he realized what he thought was like a seance was actually an exorcism and he's like destroying uh, the couple. So Lydia asks Beetlejuice for help and he agrees on the condition that she marries him. Uh, that way he's freed to enter back into the mortal world. She agrees, ends up summoning him. So Beetlejuice stops the exorcism, disposes of Maxie, his wife, then Otho. Then he summons this uh, weird little minister troll to marry Lydia. The Maitlands intervene before the ceremony is completed with Barbara coming in out of this sort of um, dune landscape on the sandworm who ends up eating Beetlejuice. The Maitlands and the Dietzes agree to live in the house in harmony. And Lydia becomes more of like kind of both their kids. And then she becomes a little more betterly adapted to her surroundings and her friends and her school. And um, she's like becoming sort of a normal kid. But we find out after that Beetlejuice is in the afterlife and he's sitting in that waiting room in that sort of government building uh, totally impatiently because he could be there for eternity uh, he's trying to get called. He switches numbers with this witch doctor who ends up shrinking his head. And that's how the movie ends. So let's look more at what went behind this classic movie. So this movie, I mean, I watched it again last night and I haven't, I probably haven't seen this thing in more than 20 years. And it's a lot more cartoony than I remember. I mean, of course, when you're a kid, things are a little more overwhelming and possibly frightening. Not that I was frightened per se by it, but it, it, it has more of that, I don't want to call it slapstick humor, but almost. The attention Tim Burton had was to make it like a B-movie, you know, those old sort of kind of campy, um, sort of, I guess, slapsticky, sort of wacky. And it did come across like that, and it definitely felt more cartoony than I remember. I was, I was sort of thinking it was going to be more, from my memory, more like, say, Batman Returns, sort of along those lines, but... Um, but still good. But the thing was, this was supposed to be a way darker film, and it went through several rewrites. Like the opening uh, car crash death scene was supposed to be a lot more graphic, and they ended up, I mean, you don't even really see anything happening. You just see the car go into the river. So what's interesting, speaking of Batman, what's interesting with Beetlejuice is the connection with Batman. So Pee-wee's Big Adventure was the huge hit for Tim Burton, and that made him more of a valuable director. After Pee-wee's Big Adventure, he'd been wanting to make Batman for a while and was working on the script, but believe it or not, the studios wanted nothing to do with a superhero movie. It's really bizarre to think. I did a whole show about the issue between uh, the great Michael Keaton backlash of 1988-89 when he was chosen to play Batman, and it's very interesting about like how studios didn't want to do superhero movies. So they were like, nah, he, he, Burton's adamant on making this thing. They're like, no. So he goes and does something more creative that ended up being Beetlejuice. So uh, even though while he was making Beetlejuice, he's actually working on the Batman script the entire time. So the script for Beetlejuice was uh, given to Burton originally by 
music mogul David Geffen, of all people. And then Geffen was the one who suggested using Michael Keaton to play Beetlejuice, which would originally then get him to Batman. But believe it or not, Tim Burton wanted to use Sammy Davis Jr. And he had never heard of Michael Keaton, but he trusted Geffen and he went with Keaton. That's when he realized this was exactly what he needed to sell Batman. This is, it wasn't as much about casting the character of Batman because you think of always like, you know, like this, I don't bigger superhero athletic. The movie's more about Bruce Wayne and you need this like real actor to be able to capture Bruce Wayne. That's the real, that's who Batman is. Um, so again, definitely listen to that show. It's very interesting to look back at the massive backlash that happened around Michael Keaton. Okay, so a few more fun facts. It actually, Beetlejuice actually won an Oscar for Best Makeup. Uh, the original title for a while they were going with was called House Ghosts, and Tim Burton hated that, so he suggested the idea of calling it Scared Sheetless, and the studio actually was going to go with that, and then he was horrified and just, you know, eventually pushed to just get it called Beetlejuice. So the interesting thing, like I talked about it being a, a much darker script originally, uh, test audiences were actually what influenced giving the movie more of an upbeat feel, especially the ending. It was supposed to just end with Beetlejuice getting eaten by the sandworm, and that's it. But the test audiences wanted to see something better because they actually liked the character, and that's where they tagged on that um, uh, waiting room scene and when he gets his head shrunk and everything. So it, the interesting thing that this movie is about Beetlejuice. It's called Beetlejuice starring Michael Keaton. He only appears in the movie for 17.5 minutes of the entire film. It's really, it's funny when I was going back and watching it and you realize it's, he's like this secondary character, even though the movie's entirely based around him. Okay, so we're going to move on, but before we do that, let's take a quick break. It was late one night in the castle of the Chicken McNuggets. What are you making? Sauce. We're using my mummy's recipe. Mummy? Uh-uh. This must be good. It'll be great. Hmm, does your daddy have a recipe? <laughs> okay, we're back. Of course, a classic uh, McDonald's Chicken McNugget commercial. So now let's look at a Halloween classic song and video, and arguably the greatest video ever made. Of course, I'm talking about Michael Jackson's Thriller. So when you're, it's hard when you're discussing Michael Jackson um, and his music. I understand it's problematic now, but I think you know there's the issue of can you separate the artist from the art? And I think in the case of say Thriller, not just the song, the video, and the album, this is as much about Quincy Jones as it is about Michael Jackson. Michael Jackson, of course, is the talent, but Quincy Jones, when you look back on this album, Quincy Jones is the creation. He is the Thriller album. He's the producer. He's the one behind it all. And then, of course, all the other sound engineers and the artists. So I think it's still, you know, you're still able to appreciate this art. And it's in, if you've not listened to the Thriller album in a while, it is mind-blowing to look back on this thing. And I'm trying to put myself in the sort of position of someone hearing it for the first time when it came out in 1982. Um, because so many of these songs are now like etched into pop culture, like the fabric of pop culture. Look at the, the song listing on the album. So it starts out with Wanna Be Starting Something, like classic, awesome dance song. It goes into Baby Be Mine, which, you know, a good song, different sort of pace. Then it goes into The Girl's Mind with Paul McCartney. So you're, you're like, wow, Paul McCartney's on this album. From that, then it goes into Thriller, which is just a song no one had ever heard 
anything like before. So you're coming out of that song, like again, trying to picture listening to this album for the first time, you're coming out of Thrill, like what, what was that? It goes into Beat It. From that, it goes into Billie Jean. <laughs> that just like that one, two, three whammy of these like iconic songs. I remember specifically the first time I heard Beat It and Billie Jean. From that, then it goes and slows it down. It goes into Human Nature, which that's one of my all-time favorite Michael Jackson songs. I think it's amazing. Then it goes into Pretty Young Thing and then finishes with The Lady Is My Life. I uh, Sorry, The Lady In My Life. And I'm just, I'm just trying to like, again, the mindset hearing this thing, like I don't think you'd be able to process. Again, we know these sort of like the back of our hand now when it comes to music, but just that order and progression of the songs, it's just incredible. Nine songs on, you know, arguably the best-selling album in history. So we're looking at Thriller itself and the album. So Thriller, the album was released actually after Halloween on in November 30th, 1982. The video didn't come out until 1983. The whole thing was influenced after Michael Jackson saw 1981's American Werewolf in Paris that was directed by John Landis. So he brought him in to direct the Thriller video. The, if, I was just watching it again today. Like, of course, there's the shorter, like, four minute version and then the long epic like 13 minute version i forgot that uh the video you know it depicts images of i guess the occult and all that sort of thing jackson at the time was actually a jehovah's witness and he put up a disclaimer at the start of the video saying he does not endorse the occult and i forgot that thing just pops up there so the plot of i mean go back and watch this again if you haven't seen it in a while the plot of the video is uh jackson's at the movie with his girlfriend and it's set in the uh, 1950s they've run out of gas while driving they're near a forest. That's when he asks her to be his girlfriend. Says he's not like other guys, the whole thing. He then turns into a werewolf and attacks her. Uh, it turns out this is a scene of a movie that they're watching in a theater. So she's scared of the movie and then leaves. So then MJ is teasing her as they're walking along. That's when the verses of Thriller start. Then uh, you hear the iconic uh, Vincent Price, I guess they call it the Thriller rap, as the um, zombies and everything start coming out of the graveyards and everything like that. Michael Jackson then becomes a zombie and starts the, you know, famous dance sequence to the song's chorus, which finally kicks in. Uh, eventually, you know, they chase her into the house and whatever. Eventually she wakes up, realizes it was just a night nightmare, but we see that Michael Jackson has those wear cat eyes. So let's look at more about this song and the video. So Thriller was the number one selling album by far in 1982. I just did a episode about the number one songs for each year of from 1980 through 1989, if you want to check out. There's a lot of surprises on that list. So yeah, number one selling album by far. Then the sales slowed down until Thriller, the video was released. When the video hit, the sales doubled. For the entire album. The video itself cost $900,000 to make, which is an absurd amount for a video at the time. And uh, networks are actually like the music stations actually had to chip in money because they were the ones that were going to show it. So they, um, they had to be sort of not forced to invest, but something along those lines. It basically, I mean, for the cost, it had the same production values as a feature film, and it was actually filmed on 35 millimeter film. That's why it has that sort of rich cinematic look to it. The original plan was to have Michael Jackson turn into a four-legged werewolf, but they realized he wouldn't be able to dance. So um, putting together the whole production, that famous red jacket and all the other costumes were created by the same costume designer who did Raiders of the Lost Ark. So the video debuts 
November 14th, 1983, obviously insanely successful. I mean, and you could only watch this on MTV. No YouTube, no, of course, nothing like that. The thing was MTV was so hammered with calls requests and everything that they would have to advertise the next time they were going to play the thriller video at the end of each airing just because they couldn't handle the how much they were inundated with requests that people just wanted to see they could have run this thing like 24 7 and been happy but because you didn't know when videos were going to come on back then it's funny to look back on those times where you were like sort of at the mercy of waiting to see a music video or waiting to hear a song on the radio Whereas now we can obviously get things instantly, but just to set that off, they had to put the next broadcast time at the end. So interesting, the week alone, that Thriller, um, the video launched, that week, the album sold another million copies just within one week. That's how huge this whole thing was. So we'll start winding it down there. Hopefully you enjoyed these uh, specific 1980s Halloween uh, specific moments um, and maybe learned a few things too. I recommend, you know, watch Beetlejuice again if you haven't seen it for a while and uh, definitely check out the Thriller video. But that's it for me. Thank you for listening. Again, if you haven't already, make sure you subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. I should be there. I will be back with a brand new episode soon. Don't you dare miss it. <laughs> Ha 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 